I think of all the truths in the Bible, one of the most important for you to understand uh, and to apply daily in your life is the truth about God's grace. If you do not understand the concept of God's grace, then I'm going to be blunt and say you don't even understand the gospel because the gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. Um, It's at the core of the gospel message. We are saved by grace, but then Peter says we are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul said that it was God's grace that motivated him to serve the Lord. Um, He also said that God's grace sustained him in his trials. Um, His grace was sufficient for Paul in whatever his thorn in the flesh was. Um, When we're needy, we are invited in the book of Hebrews to come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And of course, we're always needy. Uh, Peter also tells us in 1 Peter, we are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be revealed to us when Jesus Christ returns. And when you get to the very end of your Bible, the parting shot, the last verse in the Bible is, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that's not a throwaway line. Uh, That is a prayer that we need to apply. And because God's grace is such a vital and central concept to all that God has shown us in Christ, it's not surprising that the enemy of our souls constantly seeks to confuse, to undermine, even to contradict the grace of God. It's safe to say that every false religion, every cult, um, perverts the grace of God. Some of them teach you're saved by your good works. Uh, That's why people are knocking on your door sometimes on a Saturday. Uh, Some of them teach a mixture. Well, we're saved by grace, but we also have to add our good works Some, um, even among God's people, confuse grace with legalism and think that we achieve standing with God by um, doing certain things, usually man-made things. Uh, That only feeds the pervasive sin of pride. Others turn the grace of God into licentiousness, as the short little book of Jude mentions, and thus deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so because grace is so important, as I communicated back and forth with Pastor Charlie, um, I thought that it would be profitable to plunge in depth in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, where Paul says, you therefore, my son, I'm using the New American Standard Bible here, by the way, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Um, I'll comment on that translation as we work through the text. The entire paragraph, to put it in its context, runs down through verse 7, and the theme The main theme here is 
fruitful Christian service? How can we serve the Lord and, um, you know, be fruitful in our walk with the Lord? And as you may know, Timothy was kind of timid and prone to shrink back from exercising his spiritual gifts. We don't know if it was shyness. Uh, some folks like to avoid controversy. I mean, we all like to, but some people more than others hide from it. Um, three times, Paul exhorts Timothy, either directly or indirectly in chapter 1, uh, by his example, not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be ashamed of Paul, who was in prison because of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul encourages Timothy to exercise his gifts so he would be a fruitful Christian. And he's saying, in, and this is the whole paragraph, if I were preaching at all this morning, I would have three points. Uh, first, he says, there is a person you must be, namely strong in grace. Look down at your text here in verse 1. Then he says, there's a task that you must do, that's in verse 2, namely, entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then thirdly, in verses 3 through 7, he says, there's a price that you must pay. You must suffer hardship uh, as a, uh, he uses three examples of those who suffer hardship for a greater goal. The soldier, in verses 3 and 4, then the athlete who disciplines himself so that he can win the prize kind of thing in verse 5, and then the farmer who works hard and patiently waits for the crop. And then in verses 8 through 13, he gives three more examples of how present suffering leads to future glory. First, he mentions Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Christ had to suffer and die and then He's in glory and will come again in glory. Uh, he mentions his own example in verses 9 and 10. He's suffering so that God's elect, he says, will obtain uh, eternal glory through the gospel. And then in verses 11 through 13, he mentions an ancient Christian hymn that they may have sung in the early church uh, that teaches that endurance results in uh, rewards. So, that's kind of a quick overview of the context, but today I just want to focus on verse 1, and taking the context into account, Paul is saying that to be a fruitful Christian, you must be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the original text, you is emphatic, and the idea is, in contrast to the prevailing mood of those in Asia who were turning away from Paul, and there were defectors, Paul is saying, you, Timothy, you must be strong in grace. Um, I like the way that John Stott paraphrases verse 1. He says, never mind what other people may be thinking or saying or doing. Never mind how weak and shy you yourself may feel. As for you, Timothy, be strong. And then the word therefore, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, somebody has wisely said, always look and figure out what it's there for. Um, it's not just a throwaway word. There's a logical connection, and it links these verses back to the exhortation 
an example of endurance and of falling away that Paul gives in chapter 1. And so his thought is, therefore, in light of the great gospel message that's been deposited with us, in light of the examples you have in Onesephorus, whom he mentions in chapter 1, and in me, uh, therefore, if you want to endure and use your gifts for God's purpose and God's glory, you must be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, you'll notice that he addresses Timothy tenderly. Some versions have my child or my son, and it reminds Timothy of a couple of things. Humanly speaking, he owed his salvation to Paul. Paul came into Lystra, preached the gospel. Timothy heard it and was saved. It also reminds him that the exhortations that Paul gives are, are from a heart of a father for a son. Paul cared about Timothy, and he wanted him to be all that Christ wanted him to be. There may be a hint, too, that as a child, Timothy had to guard against being prone to being led astray by all these false teachers, because all through First and Second Timothy, as well as Titus, there's that theme of sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. And there were false teachers, even in the early church, trying to pervert the grace of God and other uh, important doctrines. And so, to be strong in grace, we have to stand firm against the enemy's relentless attempts to pollute God's grace with human merit. So flowing out of the situation, Timothy was in Ephesus. Paul's in prison in Rome. Um, Paul is seeking to correct what's going on in Ephesus and uh, stemming out of Paul's entire ministry. There are four things we want to look at this morning about how we can be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, the first one is <clears throat> to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus you have to be clear and stand firmly on the gospel of God's grace. If you've read your New Testament at all, you know that Paul was always fighting against a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish men, and I suppose some women, but mostly men, who um, were teaching... Yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we also believe to be a, a real Christian, you have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. In other words, they weren't willing to give up uh, all of the ceremonial rituals and laws of cleanliness and the rituals of the elders and all of that. And Paul wrote the entire little letter of Galatians, one of his earliest letters, to refute this teaching of the Judaizers, and he doesn't say, well, it's just a minor difference. These guys are slightly off. He, he condemns them and says, it's another gospel that's not even a gospel. And he says, let them be anathema, which means let them be damned eternally. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and, and you can have your Bible open there and see where I'm tracking, Paul repeatedly emphasizes the gospel. <clears throat> he begins, <clears throat> excuse me, that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The promise of life 
in Christ Jesus is the gospel. God imparts life to dead sinners. He goes on in verse 5 and reminds Timothy of his own conversion, um, how his mother and grandmother had led him to faith in Christ, and he's sure it's in Timothy as well. Then in verse 8, he exhorts Timothy, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering, notice, for the gospel. That's what, what the rub was with these false teachers. They denied the gospel. Um, then down in verse 10, he mentions how Christ um, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's through the gospel that we receive eternal life. It's through the gospel that God opens our eyes to understand um, divine revelation in the Bible. And then he goes on and exhorts Timothy in verses 12 through 14 to guard the deposit that, that God has made in him. And in the context, that's a reference to the gospel again. Um, so the first chapter is just um, saturated with the gospel. So when Paul in chapter 2, verse 1, following right after chapter 1, remember there were no chapter breaks in the early text, he exhorts him to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. He's thinking especially about the grace that is revealed to us in the gospel. And um, that is such an important and foundational concept. As I mentioned a moment ago, every false religion is an attack on the grace of God as seen in the gospel. And the reason is the gospel brings glory to God because it's all of God. It's all of grace. It's all undeserved. And it's not a joint project. Well, God did his part. Now I do my part. And we add it all together and you come out with the God. No, no, no. God did it all. God did it all. Salvation is of the Lord. And um, every false religion, as I mentioned, is an attack on that. Now, the more subtle ones that you have to resist are those who mingle grace with human works. It's not quite as blatant, and Satan is a deceiver, so he's always trying to bring in that sort of thing. And um, sometimes uh, I have debated back and forth with a Church of Christ pastor, and he likes my messages except when I don't mention that you have to be baptized to be saved, which he thinks you have to add baptism to, to grace and faith to be saved. And I said to him, you're committing the Galatian heresy. They, they believed in Jesus. They just said, just add circumcision. That's all. And Paul said, uh-uh. You're mingling dirt and water, and it comes out mud. You can't do that. Um, and so Paul here is thinking of this message of God's grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. That's a simple definition of grace. And if you add works to it, you diminish the work of Christ on the cross. If Christ didn't do it all and we have to add, then... You know, his work on the cross is not sufficient. We've got to add our part. 
and you've just diminished God's glory in Christ. And God's grace is given to us apart from anything we are, apart from anything we do. In fact, it's given to us in spite of who we are and what we do. Because Paul in Romans 5 says that God saved us while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies. And so his grace is uh, stemming solely from God's character, solely from his sovereign will, not from anything in us. And a common error, a lot of people think, well, you know, God's grace was shown to me because he foresaw that I was going to choose him. Well, again, that plays down God's grace because then I get to share the glory. God knew I was a brilliant guy, and I saw the light. I was going to choose him. No, no, if he had left me to myself, I'd be in the gutter today. And so grace is everything. Uh, One side note, you might wonder, well, wait a minute. If grace comes to us totally apart from anything we do, why does the Bible say that God gives grace to the humble? You know, doesn't that imply we have to do something to merit or earn his grace? And the answer to that is, uh, by its very nature, you can only receive grace when you're humble. See, if you're proud and think, I got something to bring to God, you can't receive grace. It's when you realize, I am a wretch, as John Newton put it in Amazing Grace. Uh, I deserve nothing but judgment. And if God had not loved me and broken into my life while I was a rebel, I would still be lost. And so you cry out to God, God, just give me grace. Never, never pray, by the way, that God would give you what you deserve. That's a bad prayer. Huh? Pray that God would give you grace. We all need grace. Now, I don't want to offend anyone here this morning, but I want to drive this home. And, and if, if you're here and you're Roman Catholic, or you have loved ones who are Roman Catholic, most of us do, we do. In fact, one in five Americans identifies as Roman Catholic. You need to understand what I'm going to share here, and I'm not sharing it to put anyone down. I'm sharing it to lift everyone up, as I hope you will understand. So please hear me out and listen to me. But there is a strong push, and I felt it when I was a pastor, that we should just set aside our differences between us doctrinally, our doctrinal differences between us and the Roman Catholics, and come together because we all agree on a lot of things. And uh, back 25 years ago, there was a document that came out called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and it was signed by Charles Colson, by J.I. Packer, whom I respect Dr. Packer, uh, Bill Bright, Os Guinness, others. Uh, Billy Graham also was notorious for having Roman Catholics on the pulpit with him, on the platform with him when he spoke, and at his um, evangelistic crusades, when people would come forward, they would fill out a card, and if you said, my preference is Catholic, they would feed your card to the local Catholic priest to follow through with, and um, trust that that Catholic priest was going to teach you about the gospel. Um, But the Catholic Church teaches, and you have to hear carefully, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. So far, so good. 
But we are not saved by grace through faith alone. You see, we have to add our own good works to what Jesus did and accumulate what they call merits. You know, things we deserve, because I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And if you pile up enough merits by the time you die, uh, well, you still go to purgatory, but maybe you'll get out of there quickly. I remember years ago, one of the popes died, and the new pope said, uh, let's pray for Pope, whoever it was, that, that he can pass into uh, heaven soon. So even the popes in purgatory. Um, what that means is you have no hope of heaven. All you can do is worry that you got enough merit and keep working at it, and maybe you'll get enough, and if you don't, maybe your family will you know, pay enough uh, to the local church there or pray enough beads, rosary beads for you and get you out. But there's no hope, no hope of eternal life. And um, so we have to cooperate with grace. Now, I want to share with you a couple of quotes to show you. I'm not making this up. These quotes come from the Councils of Trent, which the Catholic Church came up with in trying to oppose the Protestant Reformation that Martin Luther and other reformers started, in which they recovered the gospel. And the Catholic Church has said the teachings of Trent are irreformable. In other words, these things are set in concrete. We're not going to change them. Here's what they say. Um, this is in Session 6, Canon 12. If anyone saith, it's King James language, please overlook that. If anyone saith that justify which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. Did you catch what they're saying there? If you say we are saved by grace through faith alone, nothing else added, it's all what Christ did, you're condemned, anathema. Or here's another from Session 6, Canon 24. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. So what they're saying there is that we are justified before God by grace through faith, but not through by grace through faith alone, we have to add our good works both to preserve and to increase the grace that we receive um, from trusting in Christ. And that process is not completed the moment you trust Christ. It's not completed in this life. Maybe it get, you get it done in purgatory and then can pass into heaven. And one time... Years ago, I was invited to speak at InterVarsity on the uh, Northern Arizona University campus. And I, I was preaching on sound doctrine out of First and Second Timothy. And I made the point that the difference between you and a Jehovah's Witness is doctrine. Jehovah's Witnesses say, we believe in Christ as our Savior. The problem is, it's not the Christ of the Bible. It's a doctrinal issue. And in the message, 
I brought up what I just shared with you and said the difference between what the Catholic Church teaches and what the Reformers taught is doctrine. That's the gospel. And I said to them, the good news is if you're here as a Catholic, I want you to know you can walk out that door tonight justified right before God, totally in good standing by faith in Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And I invited the students there to trust Christ. The next week, the director of InterVarsity got up and apologized for me and said, I'm so sorry for what Pastor Cole said last week. I hope he didn't offend any of you Catholics. We just love you and accept you as you are. And when I heard that, I met with him and I said, you just took an eraser and erased this clear line of the gospel that I drew and put these people back in a hopeless situation. And, and I told him, I said, the blood of these kids is on your shoulder. Oh, no, they, they believe the same as we do, he insisted. And he said, I have Catholic friends who are saved. And I said, well, that may be. But they're saved in spite of what the church teaches, not because of it. Because the Catholic Church officially denies uh, the gospel. Uh, there are other attacks on the gospel in our day. There's a thing called the new perspective on Paul, and I can't go into that. But Satan is relentless on attacking this doctrine of grace, and it's foundational to your faith. It's foundational to the gospel, and you're going to encounter false teaching on it all over the place. So stand firm in the grace of God seen in the death of Christ on behalf of sinners, his resurrection, that he offers it freely as a gift, and that good works follow. They are not a part of receiving the gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. I won't quote it for sake of time. A second thing, to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, you have to be clear on your standing in Christ. Now, the Greek... Um, translation here, the Greek, original Greek, could be translated one of two ways. Be strong by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. In other words, grace makes us strong in him. Or be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And both are biblically valid concepts. By God's grace, we are strong, and we are strong in God's grace. But I think in the context here, the best translation is be strong in the sphere of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And if you've read Paul, you know that he repeatedly uses that little phrase, in Christ, over and over and over. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. Uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and then don't miss the last part, in Christ. And all of the riches of Christ, which he calls unfathomable riches, Ephesians 3.8, are ours in him. You know, if I put my notes in my Bible and walk out the door, where do my notes go? Out the door, because they're in my Bible. You know, they're... they're a part of it, and they're going out the door because my Bible goes out the door. Um, if you're in Christ, all of the riches that God promises in his word, all the promises of God, Paul says, are yes 
in Christ Jesus. And so this concept is foundational to your Christian walk. You know, every once in a while in the news, you'll read a bizarre story about somebody that dies as a pauper living in, you know, horrible situation, and it's discovered they're worth millions. And they never took advantage of the vast riches that they had and lived in accordance with their possessions. But either through ignorance or unbelief, there are many who don't lay hold of these riches in our daily lives in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 7, Paul says this, In the ages to come, God is going to show us the surpassing riches of his grace. Paul likes that word, riches. The surpassing riches of his grace, notice where they are, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's where they're found. And so if you're in Christ, these riches are yours. And I am convinced, here's my theology of trials in a nutshell. God brings trials into our lives. And I'm talking whatever trials, emotional struggles, physical health issues, catastrophes, you name it, for one reason, that we would discover more of the unfathomable riches of Christ for our soul. And if you've been a Christian very long, I can testify, I learn more of Christ through the things that I go through that I would rather not than when smooth sailing. I don't need him then. I'm doing fine, thanks. Everything's great. Boom, the bottom drops out. Lord, help. And, and I lay hold more of the riches of Christ. And um, <clears throat> just as an aside, this wasn't in my notes, but that's one reason I'm opposed to so-called Christian psychology because what they're doing is saying, well, Christ is nice and that devotional stuff's good, but to get through this trial, you really need our expert wisdom on these techniques. And they're solving your problem apart from Christ. I, I think that's a detour. A, a, it, it's a diversion. Christ is what we need, and we are sufficient in him. And we need that grace daily because we fall short daily. Um, so you go to God's word, and there's a promise there. Lord, thank you. That promise is for me. I need that today. Um, if you stumble and the enemy accuses you because you sinned, Lord, I need your grace to cover all my sin. And I just blew it, but thank you for your forgiveness. If you need victory over some stubborn sin, uh, Paul says that you died, and this is Romans 6 in a nutshell, you died with Christ, you've been raised up with Christ, and sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under law, but you're under grace. You're in Christ. So again, there are riches there for overcoming sin. So to, to understand, to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, you have to understand what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Because if you've trusted Christ, that's your standing before God. He's, he views you just as he views his son. So first of all, to be clear and stand firm, you have to stand firm on the gospel of God's grace. Secondly, on your standing in Christ. Then 
Thirdly, to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, you have to avoid appeals to become godly through legalism. And legalism is always permeating the church. Um, I'm not going to say it all over the place. I'm sure if you've been in other churches, you've experienced legalism. Legalism is the attempt to be holy or to look like you're holy by keeping certain rules. Usually they're man-made, not in the Bible. And you don't deal with your heart before God. I talked to the guys yesterday about this. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, oh, they were meticulous on the outward stuff. They tithed their table spices. Let's see, nine grains of salt for me, one for God. You know, that kind of stuff. Incredible. And yet Jesus exposed them and said, you know, you, you do your stuff to look good before men, but your hearts are far from me. So we've got to deal with sin on the heart level. Um, they look good before other men. I think Charlie's preaching in, in uh, Matthew 6 soon. And that was the thing Jesus exposed there. You guys do all this stuff to look good before men, but God knows your heart. And so legalists always boast in the flesh. Christians boast in the cross of Christ alone. Uh, a lot of different texts on this, and I'm just going to read this one. I have a sermon on it if you want to go online and read it. But in Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23, Paul says this. If you have died with Christ <clears throat> to, the <clears throat> excuse me, to the elementary principles of the world, so there's your position in Christ. When he died... You died with him. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters, Paul admits, which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But then notice his punchline. They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They don't work. And he goes on in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, to talk about our new position in Christ. If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking those things above where Christ is. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and so on. And so legalism never produces genuine godliness because it's only dealing with outward matters. It's not dealing with our hearts. Now, some react against legalism and go into licentiousness. They're fed up with the rules. I'm not under rules. I'm under grace. And so they go off the deep end uh, in that direction. <clears throat> I've heard Bible teachers who say legalism and license are the extremes and grace is the balance point in the middle of the seesaw. And that's a, a wrong concept. Legalism and license are both based on the flesh. Grace is based on the Spirit. And so they're opposed to one another. They're just manifestations of the same thing. I've also heard it taught, well, not in these words, but the implication is grace is hang loose California living, you know? You just kind of go with the flow. And, Oops, I blew it. No big problem. And you, you don't get hung up on sin. You don't worry about that at all. You're just kind of, you know, out here in... Uh, Land, la la land, where you wear Hawaiian shirts and shorts and, you know, enjoy the good life. That's not grace. Um, 
grace is God's unmerited favor shown to me, and grace is the motivation to live a holy life. Titus chapter 2, verses 11-12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He doesn't mean all men are saved. He means that grace brings the message of salvation to all people. Instructing us, here's what grace does, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so grace always leads to holiness. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, the other apostles, Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so God's grace motivated Paul to work hard for the Lord. Uh, need to wrap it up, so let me just review again. The grace To be strong in grace, you've got to stand firmly in the gospel of God's grace. To be strong in grace, uh, you have to avoid appeals to become godly through, or you have to be clear on your standing in Christ, second point. Thirdly, avoid legalism and the other danger that encourages you to tolerate sin. And then a final point I'll just touch on quickly. To be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, you have to be weak in yourself but strong in his sufficiency. To be strong in grace um, implies you recognize your own weakness. Otherwise, you won't trust in God's grace. You'll trust in your sufficiency. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul mentions he was burdened excessively beyond strength. He said, I despaired even of life. And then he adds, 2 Corinthians 1.9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. And so it's only when God makes us despair, God, I can't do this, that we rely on his grace. If you've read your Bible, you remember the story in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul uh, had a thorn in the flesh. He'd, he'd had this you know, incredible revelation of heaven. And to keep him humble, God sent him a thorn in the flesh. And scholars debate, was it a physical illness? Was it the Judaizers? We don't know, but it was a problem. And Paul three times cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, deliver me. And then the Lord gives this wonderful answer, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul goes on to add, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's a contradiction or a paradox, but when you're weak, you're strong, because when you're weak, you rely on the Lord. In the context of preaching the gospel, in 2 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, who is adequate for these things? And there was hardly a week went by in the 42 years I was a pastor that I did not echo that prayer. Lord, I am not adequate to preach your word. But then, in chapter 3, verse 5, he answers his own question. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves but our adequacy is in uh, is from God and so Timothy here is fight, fight, fighting against these false teachers he's not adequate to refute them and to stand firm 
Paul himself was not. Um, Timothy is trying to fill Paul's sandals. I wouldn't want that job. That'd be like trying to succeed John MacArthur, and I vote no for myself as the candidate. Um, But Paul is saying, Timothy, in Christ, you are sufficient, so stand firm. Charles Spurgeon was the preacher of the 19th century, well-known British preacher. Every week they measured attendance at Spurgeon's church by how many they had to turn away, not by how many came, because it was packed every week. Some Sundays he would tell all his people, stay away next week, we need to make room for visitors, and the place was packed. It was incredible. But one day he was, he was riding home after a heavy day's work, and he felt weary and depressed, And suddenly a text came to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And it came home with emphasis on two words, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Spurgeon said, he laughed out loud, and he said, well, certainly it is, doubtless it is, Lord. He said, the grace of the infinite God is more than sufficient for a mere insect such as I am. And he thought about how ridiculous it was to think that somehow God's grace was not enough to sustain him. He said it was like he was a little fish in the ocean and saying, you know, I'm going to drink up the ocean. No, you can't do it. And the ocean is more than sufficient for every fish, let alone one little one. And Spurgeon just laughed and uh, thought, you know, little fish... The boundless main is sufficient for thee. And so to be strong in grace, you've got to be weak in yourself, and that drives you to his unfathomable riches. Now, as I said, the context here is being a fruitful Christian, and if if you know Jesus, you want to be fruitful. You want your life to count for him, whatever gift he's given you, whether it's setting up chairs or helping out with the greeting ministry or helping with the kids or preaching the word, whatever. Well, to be that, you have to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And it's unfathomable because, as I said, in Ephesians 2, 7, Paul says, in the ages to come, he's going to show us the unfathomable riches of his grace. We'll never get to the end of it in eternity. More and more and more and more, we will go there. And so as you read through your Bible, especially the New Testament, but it's in the Old, too, under the word in the New American Standard, loving kindness or loyal love. Um, It's all through the Bible that God is a gracious God to us. And that grace ought to just make you revel and rejoice in the gospel that he saved a wretch like me. He saved a sinner like me. And as you do that, that's attractive. Grace attracts people because we all need it. So be gracious to others. Be gracious in your home. You know, be gracious to your kids. Be gracious to your neighbors. And as the grace of God flows through you, he will use you in effective service for him. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the amazing, abundant, unfathomable, unsearchable riches of your grace. If any are here who have never tasted your kindness by believing in Jesus as the Savior from their sin, I pray you would open their eyes this morning.
to the riches that are yours are theirs through what Jesus did on the cross. If any of your saints here are discouraged <clears throat> or feeling overwhelmed, I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see the riches of your grace and that we would all walk in it every single day for your glory, we pray. Amen.